Welcome to A.T. Stewart and Sons Ministries. I'm your host, A.T. Stewart. I'm glad you've chosen to join us today as we look into the Word of God. So take your Bibles and let's hang out in God's Word for a few moments and see what God would say to us today. We are coming to the conclusion of our study of Jude this morning. Jude is a book that is devoted to help Christians stand against the false teachers that abound and have abounded in every church age, and they abound in our day. After spending 16 verses describing false teachers, giving us the three characteristics of false teachers six times, first they disbelieve God's Word by twisting it. In other words, they say it means something totally different from what it really does mean. Or they discount God's Word by lifting up some other authority, be it a vision or dreams that they've had or some other book. Secondly, they indulge their fleshly desires. You can see exorbitant lifestyles in them. Sexual immorality tends to abound in these false teachers. Thirdly, we saw they rebel against proper authority. And you can look in their lives and see that they are either authorities unto themselves or they have rejected the authorities of the church. And then Jude gives us four things we need to do if we're going to stand against the false teachers. First, he tells us we must remember the words of the apostles, meaning the scriptures of Jude's day. The words that the apostles had written, the teachings of the apostles, for us it would be the Bible. You must test every teacher by the Word of God. Secondly, remain in God's love. Thirdly, reach out to those in danger. And fourthly, rest in God's greatness. And that's where we are today in verses 24 and 25 as we look at resting in God's greatness. Now stand in respect for the Word of God. As I read beginning in verse 24. Now there are three things that Jude talks about in this doxology. First, he talks about God's great power. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. God has the power to keep us saved. Now, we saw this back in March, and so I'm not Say it, not spending time on this aspect today. You can go back to the sermons in March and pick it up. Not only does he talk about God's great power, but he also talks about God's great promise. And to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. Not only will God keep us saved, he has the power to do that, but he is going to present you in the presence of his glory, blameless as if you have never sinned. And then he talks about God's great person. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty, dominion and authority before all time, and now and forever. Amen. You may be seated. Now last week we saw that our God is the only God. We saw that He is the God of Scripture, first of all. If you want to know God, you must go to His Word. You cannot go to to B. Dalton's or Noble's, uh, Barnes & Noble, and thinking or go to some vision somebody's had 
or some revelation they claim to have had. If you want to know God, you've got to go to the Scriptures because this is God's revelation of Himself. And any God that is different from the God of Scripture is a false God. And all the false teachers lift up a God that is not the God of Scripture. So you must realize that the only true God is the God of Scripture. Secondly, He alone is God. There is no other. And thirdly, He is one God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, existing as one God. Three persons, one God. We call that the Trinity. And that brings us to our Scripture today as we look at God as our Savior. Verse 25, to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now Jude is referring particularly to God the Father as our Savior. Now when you are reading the Bible and you read God, you've got to determine, is the Scripture talking about the Godhead, the Trinity, or is it talking about God the Father? And you can tell from the context of the passage. For example, when you read in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. From that context, you can tell that Genesis is talking about the Godhead, the Trinity. In the beginning, the Trinity beginning created the heavens and the earth. Now when you go to John 3.16, for God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Well, there, God is referring to God the Father. And we know that because it mentions His Son. For God the Father so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. And so you must look at the context of the Scripture to see if it's talking about the Godhead or if it's talking about God the Father. Now, Jude is praising God the Father as our Savior. Now, this may seem a little strange to you because we normally think of Jesus as our Savior, don't we? We talk about Jesus as our Savior. But actually, many times in the Old Testament, it does speak of God as our Savior. In fact, eight times in the New Testament, it speaks of God the Father as our Savior. And it speaks of Jesus as our Savior 16 times. So half as many times as it speaks of Jesus as our Savior, it actually speaks of God the Father as our Savior. And that's what we see in this passage. Now, as we consider God our Savior, uh, we need to think for a moment what the word Savior means. Savior means one who rescues someone who is in grave danger. Someone who is facing a tremendous peril, another goes in and rescues them, and we call them their Savior. If a firefighter goes into a burning building to rescue someone who is there about to die, we say he has saved that person. He has rescued them from impending danger or impending doom. And so a Savior is one who rescues another from some great destruction. Now, as we consider God our Savior, there are two questions that we need to think about. First, what is the grave danger that God has saved us from? 
as our Savior, there's got to be some grave danger that He's saving us from. The fireman saves a person from the fire. What's God saving us from? And then the second question is how? How does God the Father save us from this grave danger that we find ourselves in? What we are going to see as we answer the first question, what is the grave danger that we need saving from, is that the heart of the problem is a problem of the heart. The heart of our problem is a problem of the heart. First, there is man's heart, our heart. And the problem of our heart is one of sin. We find ourselves with a heart that is filled with sin, that is deceitfully wicked. Now, Paul, over in Romans chapter 3, and let me encourage you to turn your scriptures to Romans chapter 3, Paul here describes the condition of the human heart. As it is written, and he's referring to the Old Testament, and he actually is quoting from Psalm 14. He says, There is none righteous, not even one. Think about that. There is none righteous, he says, not even one. Of all the people that have been born since Adam, he says there's not one who is righteous. He's talking about the universally sinful condition of the human heart. You say, well, I know people that are good. I mean, my grandmama was one of the best people I ever saw. Or, well, what about Mother Teresa? Right? Isn't she good? Well, you've got to look at it this way. I say we're on the island of Hawaii, and we want to jump to Los Angeles from Hawaii. All right? Now, the long jump record is a little over 29 feet. And so we are preparing to jump, trying to make it to Los Angeles, so the guy in front of us happens to hold the long jump record, world record. And so he takes off, and he runs, and he jumps 29-plus feet to the... Pacific Ocean. And then we run after him and we jump and we may make it 10 feet into the Pacific Ocean. And then there's somebody behind us that takes off running and they may make it 5 feet into the Pacific Ocean. But the truth is, we all fell far short of reaching Los Angeles. In fact, it's 35 million feet to Los, excuse me, 13 million feet to Los Angeles from Hawaii. And the best one only did 29 feet. Now, he did better than we did, but what is that compared to what he needed to do to get there? You see the point I'm making? God's holy standard of righteousness is so high, even the best of us, can only go 29 feet when we need to go 13 million feet. The Bible says even our besties on our best day are nothing but filthy rags in the sight of a holy God. Secondly, Paul goes on to say, there is none who understands. Here he's talking about 
how we are spiritually ignorant. Now, if we go back to our illustration of jumping, not only can we not make it to Los Angeles, we don't even know which way to jump. We don't know what's east, west, north, and south. We don't even know where Los Angeles is to start jumping in that direction. He says that mankind left to himself is spiritually ignorant. We cannot understand the things of the Spirit. The Toronto Star newspaper several years ago had this story about this duck that lived in this popular park in the city. And somehow this duck had gotten one of those tabs in the cans of Coke that you break off the tab on its beak. And it couldn't open its beak to eat. And the newspaper picked up the story, and there was a lot of concern in the community. You know, the duck's going to die. He can't eat. Uh, they even nicknamed him Ringo because of the ring on his nose. Well, they tried everything they could. They, they put food out trying to get the duck to come close enough for them to catch the duck so they could take the, the ring off. They even got professional duck callers to come and use their duck calling methods trying to get that duck to come close enough that they could help it. But what did the duck keep doing? He kept running away. Well, that's an example of people who are ignorant of what it means and how they can know God and have eternal life. We're trying to help them. We're trying to share with them the news of how they can know Christ and have forgiveness of sins, but they're so ignorant they're running away from us. They think we're trying to hurt them. They think we're trying to harm them, and we're just trying to offer them the only hope of salvation they can have. Then Paul says, there is none who seeks God. Nobody seeks God. He's saying we're all self-centered. You say, well, wait a minute, preacher. What about all these religious people? Aren't they seeking God? You got the, the, the Mormons. You got the uh, Muslims. What about all these people? Don't they seek God? They seek a God of their own making. Oh, we'll seek a God of our making. We'll create a God that we want to seek. But He's not the God of Scripture. He's not a holy God. He's not the God that is sovereign of the universe. We'll create a God, and then we'll come up with a way of seeking Him. And that's what you have in all the false religions of the world. He says, they all have turned aside. This is a way of speaking about the rebellious heart that's in every person. We're born in this world rebellious. We want our way. I mean, you see that kid that's not even a year old. Man, you can see that temper come out. You can see them get mad when they don't get what they want, when they don't get to eat, when they want to eat, or they don't want to go to bed when it's time to go to bed. And that 12-month-old, that 11-month-old, you can just see the anger coming out because they're not getting their way. We, by nature, are rebellious. That's why you have to teach people to submit to authority. If you do not teach and train a child to submit to authority, they're going to be rebellious, and they will rebel against authority because it's in our nature. We want to rebel, and we do rebel against God as the ultimate authority. So he says they all have turned aside. Together they have become spiritually useless. And here he's talking about spiritually worthless. Nothing man can do can earn any credit with God. It's spiritually worthless. Jumping 29 feet compared to 13 million feet 
is totally worthless, useless. In fact, it's even worse because you've got to swim back further to get back to shore. And so we are spiritually worthless. We can do nothing to cause God to love us or accept us or earn His favor at all. Paul goes on to say, There is none who does good. There is not even one. We are morally corrupt. Even our best deeds are far short of God's holy standard because they are mixed with our selfish motives. When all is said and done, in our humanness, we do things because they benefit us. You say, well, what about that person that, that goes and, 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 and works in the soup kitchen or gives of their time to, to help the homeless? Aren't they just giving? No, they're getting something out of it. It's giving them a sense of satisfaction. It's giving them a sense of, of accomplishment. It's giving them a sense of worth. There's something that they are benefiting from that. It is not a totally selfless act in their humanness. And so he says, there is none that does good, not even one. One day a man was walking down the streets of Scotland, and he had a New Testament in a leather case. And some youth were walking down the street, and they saw him with this leather case, and they thought it was a camera. And so they went up to him and said, hey, how about taking our picture? He said, I already have your picture. They said, well, when did you take our picture? And so he opened up his New Testament to Romans 3, and he started reading, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside and have become useless. There's not, no one who's good, no, not one. He said, this is your picture. And then he went on to use that as a beginning point to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the problem is our human heart. And that problem is it is sinful. It is deceitful. We are enslaved in sin. We are under the guilt and condemnation of our sin. So that's the first problem of the heart is the heart of the problem. Secondly, you have the issue of God's heart, which has been grossly offended by our sin. God's heart is filled with wrath over the sins of mankind. God's heart has been grossly offended. God told the nation of Israel, your sin has caused a separation between me and you. The holiness of God has been violently offended by man's wickedness. The scripture says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The righteous justice of God requires that man be judged for his sins. In Romans chapter 2, Paul says, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of the wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. 
who will render to each man according to his deeds. Look at what he's saying. He's saying, you're storing up this wrath. God is piling up his holy fury, his holy anger, his holy hatred over your sins, waiting for that day of judgment when he is going to pour forth that wrath, when his holy arm is going to be revealed, and he is going to pour forth his full, undiluted fury over your sins onto you. And what is the righteous judgment of God over the sins of man? Nothing short of an eternity of agony and pain in the fires of hell. The wickedness of the human heart deserves the full, unmitigated, holy hatred of a righteous God. And the result is an eternity of suffering and pain in the fires of hell. That is the danger that we need to be delivered from. That is where we need a Savior. The problem is the sinful heart of man. His sinful heart has separated him from God. And he's under the wrath of a God and, who, and he desperately needs to be saved from that judgment and that punishment that is coming upon us. You see, God must punish sin because He's a holy God. God is morally perfect. So that means He cannot hate sin any less than He loves righteousness. You know, there are those who say, well, I think God has just looked the other way and let everybody in. You know, He's such a loving God. Now, wait a minute. God's perfect. He is morally perfect. There is no way He can... Love righteousness and at the same time ignore evil and sin. He cannot do it. Every bit as much as he loves righteousness and holiness, he must hate unrighteousness and sinfulness and wickedness. And his holy justice demands that sin be punished. And because the human condition is one of sinfulness and wickedness, we stand under the holy wrath of God because we have grossly offended and assaulted His holy person in our sins. Now that brings us to the third heart, and that's the heart of the gospel, the heart of the good news. And the heart of the gospel is that God Himself has saved His chosen ones from His own wrath. That God the Father has taken the steps necessary to appease His holy wrath, to satisfy His justice. Look in 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 9. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is the truth that sets Christianity apart from every other religion in the world. 
Christianity says God Himself has accomplished what is necessary to appease His holy wrath over the sins of His people. Every other religion in the world says man must do something to appease his God. You go to the most primitive animistic religions that have ever been, and they know they have offended their gods, whether it be the god of the trees or the stones or whatever. But there's an innate sense within man that he has offended God. And so he tries to figure out what he must do to earn the favor and acceptance of his God. It might be offering certain sacrifices. It might even and has even degraded in some points of history to offering child sacrifices, human sacrifices. Or he must offer some grain or he must offer his cattle but, or he must do something. He must pray five times toward a city or he must give alms or he must go and confess to a person. But there's always something that they must do to accomplish the acceptance of their God or try to appease the anger of their God over their sin. But Christianity alone is not built on human achievement, but divine accomplishment. God has accomplished everything necessary to appease His holy anger over the sins of His people so that we can have that forgiveness of sins. Christianity is God the Father accomplishing what is needed to quench His own wrath against those whom He has loved and chosen to save. The averting of His holy wrath from His people is His great work that He initiated and He accomplished. And this is love. Not that we loved Him. He didn't move because we loved Him first. No, He loved us. And He initiated, He took the step to send His only Son in the world to be the propitiation for our sins. So God is our Savior because we needed to be saved from His holy anger and wrath over our sins. We needed to be saved from eternity in hell. And He has accomplished, He has done what is necessary for that to take place. So that's what we needed to be saved from. And that brings us to the second question, how did God accomplish this? And that brings us to the second part of our verse where he says, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through means the means that it was accomplished by, how it was accomplished. How did God accomplish this averting, this appeasing of His wrath? And He did so through Jesus Christ. This is why Jude writes to God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord. And the entire biblical witness is clear. The means that God used to satisfy His holy wrath, to satisfy His justice, 
was the sacrificial death of his son, Jesus. Again, in 1 John 4.10, let's look more closely. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, propitiation is not a word we use in everyday language, is it? Probably been quite some time since you used that in your normal conversation. So let's spend a moment unpacking what this word means, because it's a good word. It's a biblical word. To propitiate means to appease someone, or to gain someone's favor, or to satisfy someone's justice or anger. Back in the Old Testament, you remember the story of Jacob and Esau? And you remember that Jacob, through trickery, stole the blessing that Esau deserved to have, which would have given Esau twice the inheritance. The oldest son got twice the blessing. But through subterfuge and, and, and through um, uh, trickery, he got the blessing. And as a result of it, Esau comes in and says, Okay, Dad, I'm ready for you to bless me. And, es- is, and Jacob, uh, Isaac says, I've already blessed your brother. I've already blessed. I've already given you a blessing. No, you hadn't. And he found out Jacob had gotten a blessing. Esau vowed he would kill Jacob. He was so angry. He was so upset. Well, their mother heard about it. So she says, Jacob, go see my people. Get away from here. He's going to kill you if he sees you. So Jacob went, spent several years there with her, in, her relatives, and he married, you remember, Leah, and, and, uh, and married Rebecca. And then, after several years, God says, okay, it's time for you to go back to Canaan. Well, you know what he's thinking. Esau's going to kill me. He's going to kill me if I go back. And so as he's approaching, he comes up with this idea. I'm going to send some presents, and maybe my brother, and he uses this word, will be appeased. And so he sends a hundred lambs, and he sends uh, donkeys, and he sends uh, cows, and he sends all these presents ahead, hoping that when Esau receives them, his anger will be satisfied. He will be appeased. Now, this is the same word in the Hebrew that's used in the Greek of the New Testament. We need the holy wrath of God to be satisfied somehow, to be appeased, to be averted off of us. And what he has done through Jesus Christ is Jesus has been that propitiation. He has appeased the holy wrath of God. God's holy wrath looked upon the sacrifice of Jesus over the sins of his people And his wrath said, I'm satisfied. Justice has been served. God allowed for a substitute to take our place. Galatians 3.13 speaks about this. When Paul writes, He redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, curses everyone who hangs on a tree. Paul recognized we were under the curse 
because of our sinfulness, the curse of the law. And so in order to remove that curse from us, Jesus became a curse when he hung on that cross. He took our curse upon himself and thereby removing the curse. He died in our place. Peter talks about this. He says, Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. The just was Jesus. We are the unjust. And he died for our sins. He took our sins upon himself that we might be averted from the wrath of God upon us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it this way. He made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf, in our place. He made him who knew nothing of the sin condition of man as far as committing a sin. He made him who was not under the holy wrath of the Father to come under the holy wrath and justice of a holy God in order that you and I might be saved from that holy wrath by having His righteousness given to us. That's what it means. He took our place. God poured forth His wrath on Jesus as He hung on that cross, and through the shedding of His blood, God's wrath was totally, absolutely satisfied. God's holy wrath burned itself out on Jesus as He hung on that tree. He experienced hell for His people as He hung on that tree. All of the eternity of hell that the sins of His people deserved were compressed into those three hours as He hung on that cross. Such suffering is beyond our comprehension. Isaiah prophesied about this in Isaiah 53. Look at these poignant words. But the Lord, God the Father, was pleased to crush Him, God the Son, putting Him to grief as a result of the anguish of His soul. He, the Father, will see it and be satisfied. Hallelujah. The Father in love sent forth the Son. The Son in love went forth and gladly took upon Himself the sins of His people. As that angel said, His name should be called Jesus, for He shall save His people from their sins. And He gladly went forth and became that sacrifice and became the one punished in our place that we can have the forgiveness of sin. And anyone who will place his complete faith in the Lord Jesus Christ can have peace with God and be saved from his wrath. Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, and justified means set right with God, by faith, not by works, not by anything you can do, not by paying for it, but by faith, we have peace with God. 
through our Lord Jesus Christ. When you place your complete trust and confidence in what Jesus accomplished through His perfect life, through His death on the cross, and you realize you cannot add anything to it, nor do you even try to add anything to what He's done, but you simply receive it, believe it, trust it by faith, then God says, I credit to you His perfect righteousness. And He received the punishment you deserve upon Himself. Throw yourself upon His mercy, pleading the blood of Christ as a payment for your sins. Never stand before God thinking, well, I was better than so-and-so. Five feet's not much better than, than three feet when you've got to go 13 million feet. You know, to, to bring the analogy down, you know, it's like Jesus is an airplane, and we, don't, we just get on that plane, and we ride to Los Angeles. He takes us to Los Angeles. Nothing we do. We're not making that plane go. We're just resting in that plane to take us to Los Angeles. There's nothing you and I can do that can get us there to heaven. We must place our trust in Jesus, that He has experienced the holy wrath, that He has satisfied God's wrath, and that we can have eternal life in Him and forgiveness of our sins. Brian Chapel is the president of Covenant Seminary in St. Louis. He tells this story that happened in his hometown when he was growing up. These two boys, brothers, decided that they would go and play down by the river. And so they were playing there on the sandbanks and not realizing the sand was like quicksand. And they didn't come home when it was time for them to come home. And so their mom got concerned, and she organized a search party of the neighbors. And when they got down to the riverbank, they saw the younger brother there in the sand. The sand was up to his shoulders. And so they cleared away the sand down to his waist so he could breathe, and he revived. And they said, where's your older brother? Where's your brother? And he said, I'm standing on his shoulder. Now that older brother gave his life so that younger brother could live. Our elder brother, Jesus, gave his life so we could live. Will you place your complete trust in him and him alone as your Savior and surrender to him as your Lord? Let's pray. We do welcome you, and I'm glad that you have taken the opportunity to listen to a sermon on our internet. And I want you just to know that uh, everybody in the church is not like me. Uh, I have these fellows up here, our leadership team. Uh, this is Filiberto Medina, who is our Hispanic pastor. And our Hispanic congregation meets every Sunday evening at 6.30. This is Paul Kumar. He is our Minister of Community Connections. Uh, and to my left is Mark Baker who heads up our Reformers Unanimous Ministry, which is a Christian addiction recovery program that meets every Friday night at 7 o'clock.
So if you live in the Mableton area, uh, and it doesn't matter what race you're from, it doesn't matter your cultural background, I want you to know you are welcome at Westside Church. This is where everybody is somebody and Jesus is Lord. Hope you'll join us soon. Thank you for being with us for this message. Each week, Dr. Stewart gives practical applications and ways to live out the Word of God. If you would like more information, please take a moment to view our website at wbcfamily.org. That's wbcfamily.org.